Hello and welcome to Roman Sunday School. So glad to have you this week. We begin our journey through Scott McKnight's book, Reading Romans Backwards, by taking a look at Romans chapter 16, verses 1 through 16. This is a recording of the Zoom class that I did this Sunday. So stick around and check it out. Let's pray. Holy God, on this day, we are grateful for this time together. We're grateful for what you've done for us and the ways in which you've shaped us. As we study your word, we ask that your spirit would be present in our midst, giving us wisdom, understanding, and purpose. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to go ahead and uh, and um, mute you guys. Uh, so again, use your... Um, I can find the button. I haven't done that in quite a while. Uh, well, I'll leave you going because I can't find the button. Anyway, so uh, I'm going to get started. We're going to do this. I'm going to screen share my uh, PowerPoint for you so that that will get us going. Um, and and there you go. Can everybody see that okay? Yes. Yes. Great. So, okay. So you see uh, a book and you see the face of a guy. The book is Reading Romans Backwards by Scott McKnight. Who can guess who the guy is? Scott McKnight. Yes, that's right, Ken. Wait. Gold star for you. So uh, anyway, so we're going to use Scott McKnight's book, uh, Reading Romans Backwards. Um, this is a new book. It just came out this past year um, and, uh, and should be pretty interesting for us. Um, certainly different. So I'll, I'll read through some of this stuff. Uh, so... Scott McKnight is a professor at Northern Seminary. He wrote this book, um, and we're going to try this. Uh, it's going to lead us to a different interpretation than traditional content uh, to uh, traditional commentators. So I'm going to contrast that where necessary, um, but mostly we're just going to stay with this. Uh, and this last point is one that I really want to reiterate. So this is McKnight's work. It's not the authoritative commentary on Romans, but it should give us kind of a fresh uh, take on Romans. By reading it backwards, McKnight's going to argue that we're going to understand the book better uh, than if we read it from the start. Um, keep in mind, why would that be? You sit there and think, well, like you wouldn't sit down and read a Stephen King novel from the back to the front and understand it better. But we're dealing with a fundamentally different genre than anything we're accustomed to in our lives now. And so most of the people who would have had this letter would have had quite a bit more context than you and I have when we sit down and look at it. So reading it backwards, McKnight argues, gives us the necessary context to understand some of Paul's arguments that occur earlier in the letter. Uh, so we're not going to get to kind of the more famous parts of Romans for several weeks. Um, but I do encourage you to stick with it uh, throughout the duration uh, if you're able and if you're not too bored um, because it's, it's a fundamental work. So uh, let's go ahead and take a look at the next slide. Uh, what do we need to, to know before we start? Obviously the context matters a lot. Uh, Jesus lived during the absolute height of the Roman empire. Paul is living right in the midst of that as well. I mean, it is, it is impossible to overstate the significance of the city of Rome to the lives of almost everyone in the Western world. Uh, there just hadn't been an empire like the Roman empire uh, in human history in Europe and North Africa. 
it, it, it was so significant. So obviously this letter to the churches in the capital city is important. Next, uh, Jews and Gentiles was a thing. That was a real problem. If you've studied Acts before, you know this. If you have uh, spent quite a bit of time in Paul's letters, you know this. Um, but, but just as a refresher, there were Jewish Christians and there were Gentile Christians. Understanding that and understanding that this issue pervades the entire letter is fundamental. Don't let that distinction ever stop rolling in your mind while we work through this letter. Jews and Gentiles. So, and remember, a Gentile is easiest, easiestly defined as just a non-Jew. So there's Jews and then there's everybody else and they're the Gentiles. Uh, so uh, you got to remember that, that that is just kind of running in the background of this whole letter and, and indeed almost all of Paul's writings, uh, certainly the book of Acts, and then even some of the Gospels. Uh, the Jewish Gentile thing is real, it's important, and it helps us to understand and it also helps us to see the ways in which the church was shaped going forward. The reason you and I can enjoy our shellfish is because Paul won the argument that Christians did not need to keep Jewish laws. Uh, but that was a very live and active argument early in the church. So Jews and Gentiles was definitely a thing. Romans provides us with the theological foundations of Christianity. Uh, this is the most significant theological work in the New Testament outside of the Gospels. Paul's writings here help to shape all of future Christian theology and thought. Uh, you will see it everywhere as we read through Romans, the ways in which Christian thought was shaped going forward. So uh, it, is, it is just incredibly significant. Another context issue is that Claudius purged uh, the city of Rome of Jews, and these were likely Jewish Christians. Um, this was just before Paul writes this letter in the 50s. Um, so they had just returned uh, to to Rome, the Jewish Christians had. Uh, this is going to be part of the context of the Jewish-Gentile divide that exists and Paul uh, deals with in Romans. So they returned under Nero um, to a changed and Hellenized church. Hellenized means Greek. Uh, it is kind of the worldview of the standard Roman. It's a good way of saying a Gentile church. And then finally, um, the Christian presence in Rome emerged as it did in many places out of Jewish synagogue gatherings. Um, and then another thing to keep in mind that in as much as these locations were dense populations of mostly poor and immigrants, we know the followers of Jesus were probably mostly poor. So you're talking about the Christian church growing kind of in the slums of Rome. This is particular to Rome. This doesn't mean that this is how it went in every other city, but in Rome, the seeds of the church were amongst the Jewish synagogues, which were largely poor. Okay, uh, I'm going to stop the share there just for a second and take a look at all of you or mostly your black screens. Does anybody have any questions before we go to the next thing? We really, we've got to do this context stuff because it's really going to make sure that we have a proper appreciation for what's going on. Nothing drives me more crazy then when somebody pulls out one verse of Romans and acts like that means something. Uh, Romans really can only be interpreted in light of the rest of Romans and in light of this context. You really have to take a, a wider view if we're gonna get into it. 
Uh, any questions? Keep going. Okay. Let's keep going. So Romans 16, one to two. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church at Sancrea, so that you may welcome her in the Lord as is fitting for the saints and help her in whatever she may require from you. For she has been a benefactor of many and of myself as well. So Phoebe, the second most important name in the book of Romans behind Paul is Phoebe. Uh, I have a friend who has a cat named Phoebe. What a great way to honor this person. Um, <laughs> let's learn some things. So a couple quotes. So when it's in quotes, I'm pulling it directly from um, McKnight's book. This oft-claimed patriarchal male, that being Paul, asks a wealthy, influential female, Phoebe, not only to deliver his prized letter, but also to read it to each of the five or six or more house churches in Rome. More needs to be said about reading the letter. The courier Phoebe performed the letter, and I assume to each house church, but it is possible she performed it only once. Writers like Paul didn't hand letters over to schmucks to stumble their way through the letters. So what McKnight's arguing, this is new to me, but I'm going to take his word for it. And I don't think it's, I, I certainly think it's likely that this is how things happened. Don't think of Phoebe standing in a church with her head down, reading the letter. She would have memorized it. And so what McKnight's saying here is that essentially she would have performed it rather than read it at each of the churches. So when we hear Romans, it's interesting to hear it in that context, to hear it as if an actor is delivering it rather than as if someone is standing there reading it. So this means body language, gestures, eye contact would have been important parts of conveying the meaning of this letter. So Phoebe probably would have practiced it before Paul and Timothy and some of the other apostles to make sure that she had it right. Paul might have said to her, look at these certain groups in these churches when you say these lines. Um, it's a very interesting way to think about this, but you were talking about a society in which most people were illiterate. So conveying information was often done in more of a performative act uh, than in an act of reading. Um, so it's kind of interesting as we work through this to think about a woman, Phoebe, standing in front of these churches, performing uh, a book of, a book of <clears throat> Romans for, for them. So uh, this is some of the stuff uh, that I've mentioned here um, that uh, she would have discussed it with Paul, Timothy, Tertius, and Gaius, performed it in their presence. Um, she might have ad-libbed some things if she thought the audience needed. Gestures would have been at the right time uh, to the right segment of the audience. These letters were extremely important. Paul would not likely have left a chance how it was conveyed. That's what McKnight means when he says that he wouldn't have just given it to a schmuck to take. Uh, so to help us with this, here is, and this is a little bit jerky, uh, but it should get to the point. Here is um, from YouTube a... Uh, this is this is Romans recited. So this is just kind of our passage. It lasts about a minute or two. God of peace be with you all. Amen. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Sancrea. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints 
and to give her whatever help she may need from you, for she has been a great help to many people, including me. Me. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Greet my dear friend Eponidas, the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junius, my relatives who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Greet Ampliatus, whom I love in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stachus. Greet Apollos, tested and approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodion, my relative. Greet those in the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, those women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobas, Hermas, and the brothers with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send greetings. Okay, so I showed you that just to give you a different idea of what something might sound like if it's recited or performed rather than read. I think you can get a, a different idea of how this letter would have sounded if you think about it in this way, uh, where it's, it's spoken like this. So Paul sent his letter to the churches in Rome. He sent them, he tells us, with a woman named Phoebe. Phoebe likely performed those letters that letter multiple times in multiple house churches. I find it incredibly unlikely that she would have done it just once and for one of the churches. Her letter would have been uh, basically um, blocked if you think about it in acting terms. Uh, and she would have done it in a way that was meant to emphasize certain pieces of the letter to certain members of the audience who Paul was specifically trying to address. Think back to our Jews and Gentiles conversation. There were Jews and Gentiles in each church. Paul had a different message for both of them, but it was a message that ultimately aligned under the idea of Christian unity uh, in the midst of, um, of, of their divisions based on kind of ethnicity. So before we move on, anybody have comments or questions about any of, any of the things I've said there? Again, we're laying foundation uh, for the rest of the letter here. Um, hearing Phoebe and talking about her, I think, is, is useful. Any questions or comments? Okay, we're going to keep going. God of peace. There we go. So what do we know about Phoebe? She's a sister, a term Paul used elsewhere for women in Christ, and she's a Gentile convert sister. Her name means titaness. Uh, you can tell people's ethnicity in the New Testament based on their names. If they have a Jewish name, they are Jewish. If they have a non-Jewish name, they're a Gentile. It's that simple. And you can get a pretty good idea of which is which. If somebody's named Titanus, uh, they're not Jewish. Um, if the metaphor sister means anything, it means a new social reality as at work among the house churches throughout the Roman Empire. 
For in that world, one's identity was one's status, and one's status was determined most by one's family, one's connections or patrons, and one's wealth. With the term sister, Paul creates a new society of siblings, one designed to obliterate privilege and power. This is really important. Remember our context, the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was built and based socially entirely on patronage. Everybody had patrons. And the more clients you had, the more power you had. And so people were constantly using their patrons to climb the social hierarchy and the social ladder. Paul's familial language that he uses in almost all of his letters and the language which we see echoed in the gospels and in other areas of the New Testament, brother and sister, is meant to undermine and obliterate this power structure within the church. So when Paul says to people, okay, you know, out in society, you're climbing a ladder, you're not doing that here. So when Paul sends Phoebe and gives her the designation of sister, that is all part of a bigger understanding of how the social structure of a church will function. So when you hear that family language in scripture, remember that is a direct attack on the Roman patronage structure. So this really matters as we think about our own social structures here in modern day America and the ways in which we think about society and about status uh, that the church should be uh, basically radically equal. Uh, that's what we're trying to do inside the church. We are not trying to establish a social hierarchy that mirrors society around us. Thank God. So let's move on. So she's a sister and she's loaded. Phoebe was rich. Paul uses the wildly popular term benefactor. This again points back to the idea of patron. Uh, more than any term in his world, a benefactor gained a public a person, public honor in Roman society. So to do the work of an apostle, Paul required time for prayer, study of scriptures, and for pastoring, meeting, talking, and discussing, and more time for traveling and starting new churches. Uh, add to this Paul's time in prison where support came from friends. To do all this, Paul needed patrons. Phoebe's one of them. So Phoebe gave him money and other people money. Uh, and then that, though, Paul's contrasting that with... Uh, with the idea of hierarchy. So while we don't live in a hierarchy in the church, we should also understand that Phoebe has put her money and her status where her mouth is as it relates to the church. So Phoebe has proven with her behavior, uh, her commitment to him, his mission, and to the spreading of the church to the Gentiles. So that's important. Okay, uh, we'll pause there before we get into... Um, get into this bit, if I can move down. There we go. Uh, any questions or, or comments there about Phoebe? In my Bible, it says that uh, the Greek word for Phoebe was translated as deaconess. Yeah. Yeah, the deacon, the title of versus. Deacon. Go ahead. Well, and the word you used translation sounded a little more fairy tale-ish which one the the when you described or phoebe's name what it was translated to oh it's titanus what... titanus yeah titanus so phoebe literally means titanus but uh she is also described as a deacon or deaconess 
or minister, however you want to uh, interpret that word. Okay. So yours says her name is literally deacon? Uh, Phoebe was known as a servant. And then in yeah. parentheses, the Greek word used here is often translated deaconess. Right. So servant is the word. Uh, so where you get to that. So it says, like, I commend to you, our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church at Senecre. Uh, okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, so that deacon word is a service word. Like, if you think back to the first deacon, um, it was uh, Stephen and Acts, and the deacons were commissioned in order to do the work of the poor, uh, or do ministry to the poor on behalf of the church, uh, because that allowed the apostles to focus on evangelism and teaching. And so uh, we can imagine here that Phoebe's role in her home church was one of service to the poor. Because Got of that. it. I wasn't sure. Wasn't sure which word was being modified there. Right. Yeah. It's it in those notes. It's pretty. It's pretty difficult. And once you start drilling down into these issues of <clears throat> translation, as Tasha mentioned in her sermon today, uh, it can get a little bit cumbersome. And also, we lose context. So, like when I told you, if you look over, it says at the end of verse two, "For she has been a benefactor of many, and of myself as well." We don't. The word benefactor does not resonate with us in the same way that the Greek word for it would have resonated with the Roman churches. Uh, it was very much a social word. So there's certain things that we lose, and this is why context is so important as we work our way through this stuff. We, we just lose things. You know, I, I mean, we're 2,000 years into the future, so it's very difficult for us to get back into the mind of what was happening uh, around you know, 58, 59 AD. Any other questions? Thank you. Okay, we're going to keep moving on to, uh, to the end of, of Romans. So we'll look at 3 uh, through 16. There we go. Things being wonky. Okay, there we go. Nope, not what I want. So, uh, greet Priscilla, Prissa and Aquila who work with me in Christ Jesus and who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Eponidas who was the first convert in Asia. Here, remember, when we see the word Asia, we're not talking about a continent. We are talking about a Roman province, Asia. Uh, so that is Turkey. For Christ, greet Mary, who has worked very hard among you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my relatives, who were in prison with me. They are prominent among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my uh, beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my relative Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, uh, Trophania or Trof and Trophosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Ru Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and greet his mother, a mother to me also. Greet Asyncretus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers and sisters who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. So there we have read um, the end of this. There we go. That's what I want. We have read the end of uh, the scripture outside of the doxology. So these are all people that Paul wants to send greetings to who are in Rome. So let's see what we can learn about some of this gang. Um, 
and about the churches through the list. There's some pretty interesting things that we can learn with some certainty and then some that are more speculative, but they're all pretty interesting. So there were at least five house churches in Rome. Uh, they must maybe best be understood in modern terms as a gathering of believers in a designated space of a private business. It was as much a public space as it was a sacred space. So this is multi-purpose type stuff. Um, Roman houses were built in such a way uh, that they had kind of a large atrium in many of them, along with a dining room. They would have met in the wealthier Romans' homes. Uh, so some of the believers, what happened in Corinth, for example, is that some of the believers would stand in the atrium while others would be in the dining room, and it, it created a hierarchy, uh, which Paul then tried to untangle. Um, so you're meeting in homes, and, and a home would also be attached to a business, uh, much like when you go to Europe. Uh, you can see a, a business on the ground floor and then uh, apartments above it. Um, Rome would have been very similar. Uh, they made conversations common, uh, made questions and answers common, and made speakers less the orator and, more importantly, a sibling. So they would have functioned very much as communities first. So don't think in terms of, you know, our traditional churches. Those didn't start showing up for another 200 years, 250 years, where you would have designated Christian worship space. Uh, it took a long time before uh, the church was able to move out of people's houses or of shared public space uh, into what we would identify as a church. And it reminds us that our Sunday morning worship services are not first century gatherings. If you need proof of that, you need only to look at verse 16, where Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss. I've never read anything that clearly articulates what that meant. Um, obviously, there was a kiss. Uh, they were supposed to kiss each other, but what, how that worked, I mean, you know, we don't even know really how the holy kiss ritual functioned. So uh, obviously, um, if you've been kissed by about 100, 150 people ever when you've attended a worship service, you've been to a different service than I've been to, but you would have expected for that to happen if you had gone to a house church in Rome, that your service would have ended with a holy kiss, uh, everybody. So whatever that meant, we don't really know, or at least I don't, um, but it certainly shows a, a strong distinction. If you wanna have fun, you can imagine a Presbyterian worship committee meeting where we try to introduce a holy kiss into the end of a service. So, um, the house churches of Rome, probably, there were, these are five as best as anybody can tell from reading through this. So there was the household of Priscilla and Aquila, and I've given you the verse citations there, 16, 3 to 5a, talks about that one. The residence of Aristobulus, 1610. Um, so this is interesting. He was perhaps the grandson of Herod the Great, uh, who had died in the 40s, but whose household continues. Um, and perhaps a Christian slave came with him and helped him found the church in Rome. So this is based on documentation outside of the Bible. Um, the residence of Narcissus, and that was perhaps the home of the deceased Roman administrator under Claudius or less likely under Nero. So a Roman administrator named Narcissus uh, could have been involved and he, he may have been dead, but there is again documentation for him. What we love about the Romans is that they wrote everything down uh, so we have a good understanding of, of what, what some of these people might have been doing. We also can find, like they've found deeds 
of houses from the first century in Rome. So there is documentation for some things and we can kind of piece things together. The residents of Asyncretus and others, we don't know anything about him, the residents of Philogus, Julia and others. So again, there could have been, there were probably multiple churches, but there were at least five of them. Uh, and these are the ones that Paul name checks at the end of Romans. Uh, continuing, um, no matter where Paul founded a church, a dainty game of status was played at times with a heavy stick. Power and privilege was the way of Rome. There's your first typo, Lynn Castleman. I know you're keeping track. The way of Rome, the way of the world, and the way of the Christian who was not Christiform. Uh, we'll get into that term later. It's one that McKnight builds uh, heavily into uh, our next few weeks. A greeting from Paul was enough to swell the chest of some and to raise the blood pressure of others. So within churches, um, there was still, it was still difficult for people to extract themselves from this game of who's most important. You can imagine if your entire life is built around trying to climb a social ladder and then you come in for a few hours on a Saturday or Sunday into this church, it's very difficult to turn that off and also to not try to impose that onto the structure of the church. So um, anyway, so that was going on. So Paul name checking people here would have been a way of him conferring uh, his kind of approval or authority onto those people within those churches. So really uh, kind of interesting there. So there here's some other uh, little things about diversity. The tradition of translators to turn Greek or Jewish names into their Latin-based equivalent. So Narcissus is what is in the manuscript becomes Narcissus. Obscures a, obscures a hidden reality of the Roman house churches. There are Greek names, Latin names, and Jewish names. People from all over the empire were part of these churches. Um, diversity was a huge part of the early Christian church and also one of its most powerful tools for growth and evangelism. The fact that in Roman culture, your ethnicity often limited uh, your ability, especially at this time, to climb the social ladder. Within the church, it did not, ideally. And so um, subsequent translators uh, or, or scribes, when they would come along and write down these letters, as McKnight points out, some of the later ones will change uh, Narciss Narcissus's name from Narcissus to Narcissus because the Latin was viewed as superior to the Greek. Um, but that was not his name. Narcissus is not a Roman name. It's a Greek name. Um, so, you know, again, you're talking about an empire that spans at this time, uh, west to east, it goes from France all the way uh, through most of modern Turkey. North to south, it goes from parts of Germany all the way down into North Africa, uh, Libya, um, Egypt, uh, and, and those Mediterranean nations. It is a massive, massive geographic footprint. It encompassed millions of people from different ethnic and religious and social backgrounds. And so what was very interesting is that from the <clears throat> earliest days, the church reflected that diversity. So uh, you can see that in the names. So the most common languages of the house churches early on was Greek, uh, then Aramaic and Hebrew and then Latin. More people spoke Greek than spoke Latin uh, because of Hellenization. So uh, while the Roman Empire was ascendant, the, the kind of common language of the realm was Greek. Um, 
And then there were certainly slaves in the house churches. That is absolutely certain. And during church, they were treated as equals and they did different roles in the church uh, that were sometimes significant. So that doesn't mean that when they got outside the doors, then they were emancipated. So this is a, a sticky wicket, obviously, in the history of the church. But within the church, again, a reflection of the diversity is the role that slaves play. This is most clearly articulated, articulated in Paul's very short letter, um, Philemon, where he writes to Philemon about Philemon's slave Onesimus. So moving on, some of the people, Prisha, known to Luke as Priscilla. So when you see Priscilla in Acts, this is who Luke is talking about. She's mentioned on a number of occasions before her husband, and that probably speaks to her status in the Roman world. Archaeological evidence, evidence takes us back to the early second century AD to high status property in her name. Uh, she taught Apollos along with her husband, who was Aquila. Theirs is the only house church mentioned by name. So Apollos was a fellow evangelist of Paul's. He was very popular in the Hellenistic world. He traveled significantly in Greece, in, uh, Greece um, and would come in behind Paul. They didn't always agree on things. You see Apollos name-checked in Corinthians, where some people are saying, well, I'm team Paul, and others are saying, I'm team Apollos. Uh, this is that Apollos. So Apollos would have been evangelized and taught by Aquila and by Prissa. Uh, so they're very significant figures in the early church, um, and they have a house church there in Rome. Uh, Junia, who Paul calls an apostle, if uh, we look um, to where is, uh, let me see where she is. Uh, she's in um, verse 7 there. Uh, meet, greet Andronicus and Junia, my relatives who were in prison with me. They are prominent among the apostles. Uh, so she was an apostle. You can tell that from the Greek construction, but her name got changed by translators who believed that no women could be apostles. So up until about 50 or 60 years ago, every Bible would have translated her name as Junius, a male name uh, to preserve the idea that only men were apostles. So a fascinating little point there um, about, about what people did uh, coming after her. So she was lost in a lot of ways, even though she was hiding in plain sight here at the end of Romans. So that uh, kind of brings us to the end of those uh, sections. Um, let me get my share off here. Uh, okay, questions, comments. What do you have to say about this? Excuse me, this is Chris. I just have a general question about the uh, the house churches uh and i don't think you said this in terms of the context but were they secretive in any way did they did they uh, sort of fly under the radar or in terms of um, their relationship with the government at this point i would say no uh, they were not secretive even though the romans at this point didn't see a difference between jews and christians they thought they were <laughs> the same thing so like when claudius expelled the jews um from rome uh, that's when we're going to get into this a lot, but then the Gentiles became ascendant in those churches. So uh, at this point in time, there is not significant persecution of Christians in Rome. Now that's going to change under Nero, uh, and then that's going to wax and wane over the first three centuries uh, AD. 
But at this moment, they didn't have to be secretive. Later, they will have to be very secretive. Now, they didn't, I don't think, flaunt it, but I don't think they had to, to change locations or hide things in Rome when Paul's writing. Um, so if you, if you remember from our Thessalonians conversation, uh, persecution was a significant part of First and Second Thessalonians. Uh, the, the church in Thessalonica was prosecuted. Um, here in Romans, Paul doesn't really speak that much to the Roman church being prosecuted or persecuted, I should say. Uh, so for, for this, this group at this time, persecution was not a major problem. That would be an outlier for most of the church's early history. Most of the church's early history, it was heavily persecuted. Thank you. Other questions, guys? Oh, Greg Roberts. Um, yeah, I, I am fascinated with the, um, <clears throat> the this whole context thing, um, how significant it is, as you have emphasized. It seems like there is, if we consider the context, even in this story, say, or in this book of Romans, it, it seems applicable to current culture to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, and the, the, and the whole idea of understanding the context. I mean, there's this, obviously this conflict mm-hmm. that is going on, this sort of polarized culture, maybe. I mean, I, I guess my question is, is how, how polarized and how much do we really know about, I guess we know a lot about where that eventually goes. <laughs> but I mean, is, is there something to gain from that? discussion. I guess. Well, I think there certainly is something to gain from it um, because we, what we've done is we idealize the early church. We feel like the early church must have been the perfect church. Uh, they were closer to Jesus. They were the founders of the faith. Uh, they had access to Paul and people who knew Paul. Um, and what we lose there is, is this understanding. I don't think we can, I, I think this is something that is imminently applicable. If you're looking for something to apply to your life today, I'm, I'm about to tell you what I think about that. The early churches were incredibly diverse and that diversity led to conflict. Being from diverse backgrounds and with diverse worldviews makes it very difficult for people to form a unified worship experience or Christian experience or worldview. Paul in these letters is articulating to them that having divergent worldviews, despite their diversity, is not acceptable within the church. So that is something you can explore and we will explore in Romans. Another place where we can orient that is in 1 Corinthians. Um, But and, you know, if you follow along in Stress to the Nines, in two weeks, we'll be in chapter three. That's another place. What Paul's saying is you are diverse. There are Jews amongst you. There are Gentiles amongst you. There are slaves amongst you. There are free people amongst you. There are men amongst you. There are women amongst you. Great. I am glad that you're diverse. But when you are in church, it is all about Christ. And so uh, they are able to use their diversity in their best moments to grow the church, but in their worst moments, 
it threatens to destroy it because they're unable to reconcile fundamental elements of their worldviews with each other. Does that kind of get to what you're asking there, Greg? Yes. I mean, and I, I think to me that that is very significant. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think we, you know, there's 5,000 Christian denominations in the United States of America. Uh, this is a testimony to the fact and the ways in which we function together is a testimony to the fact that we still and yet do not do a good job of building our relationships around the unifying principles of Christ as opposed to the distinctiveness of our own worldviews. Yes. So it's a great question. And it's one that I hope people pull away. The early church was not perfect. It's not like they all sat around singing Kumbaya and holding hands. They got, they had real problems. And Paul gets very angry with them uh, on numerous occasions and does everything he can to try to help them understand that they are supposed to live together as one in a certain way. Other questions or comments? here with this stuff. Okay, we got a lot of names and things this week. That ends after this week. The names and all that stuff goes away. So try to, I'll reference back to some of this as necessary, particularly to the Jews and Gentiles issue. That's not going to go away. That's going to be there every single week. Um, but hopefully what you take away from this week is a few things. First, these churches were very diverse. Second, these churches included flesh and blood living people uh, who had thoughts, feelings, beliefs, differences, hopes, dreams, just like you and I do. Third, they were trying to figure out at the most fundamental and basic level what it meant to be a Christian going forward. And then fourth, I hope you will take away that it was hard to do that. So all these names, all these people, uh, these were, were, these are our forebears. These are the people that came before us that laid the foundations for us, which we <clears throat> uh, today. So uh, next week, we will take a look at the strong and the weak. These are um, the names of the groups that, uh, that Scott McKnight uh, splits everybody up into in the Roman house churches. Who are they? How does he make those designations? Uh, that's what we will get to next week. Okay. Thanks, everybody. I hope that was helpful. Thanks for listening to Sunday School this week. Uh, please do join us via Zoom on Sunday morning if you would like. That information is on the church's website. If you have any questions or comments or thoughts about this episode, please do reach out to me. You can shoot me an email, send me a text, call me, or any way you like. Thanks for joining. I'll talk to you next week.